Welcome to the Everyday Citizens Tactical Podcast, Episode 30, Intelligence and Second Amendment Evolution. My name is Jeremy, and as always, I will be your host. Today I'm joined by Joey, who is the owner of Grey Fighter and Trinity Training Complex, and has spent his career in law enforcement in the realm of anti-terrorism. Today we discuss gathering intelligence to aid in your preparedness, the Second Amendment, and the changes we've seen as the number of gun owners has grown. So, without further delay, let's begin. Tell me turn it down and I'ma only turn up louder Yo! Call me what you wanna but you can't call me no coward no! Straight the numbers, we the people still the ones with power Fighting fire with fire, time to take back what is ours Tell me turn it down and I'ma All right, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. And Joey, thank you for coming on, buddy. Thank you, brother. What's going on? Not a whole lot. Uh, I met Joey two years ago at the Deliver Fun Range Day, I believe it was. Uh, then I got to see you again at the Human Trafficking Awareness Range Day this year. But for those that don't know you, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit, tell everybody about you? Yeah, man. Uh, so I'm Joe Fasanello. I'm from uh, up in New York City. I uh, spent some time um, with NYPD, did about 13 years with them. Spent a good majority of that time in the counterterrorism division. Uh, back in 2016, I flipped over to DHS, went over to the Fed side. Um, on the outside, I own Gray Fighter, formerly Conditioned Gray. Uh, we just rechanged names and rebranded last year. Um, I also own Trinity Training Complex, which is New York City's uh, largest public training complex uh, of its kind. So it's been a, an interesting realm. I, I dabble in both uh, training on law enforcement military side. I train on the civilian side. And then obviously with, with Grade Fighter, we have a, a pretty robust product line that's uh, right now being do, doing pretty well and sold globally. So it's, uh, it's been an interesting ride. We've been doing it about 10 years and um, getting close to retirement. <laughs> so I'm probably going to start pushing a little harder on the, um, on the company side. Mm-hmm. I kind of egress out and bow out gracefully from my, my law enforcement career. But uh Life's been good. It's been handing me a lot of different, uh, unique challenges up here in New York. Mm-hmm. We've been addressing them as best as we can, as you, as you know. Um, yeah. Been an interesting ride. <laughs> With some of the recent changes in New York, especially like gun legislation, what is, what are some of the classes that Trinity is offering right now? Because I know we have a decent amount of New York followers, and obviously the, the market there is a little bit more bare for trading. Oh, without a doubt. So people don't know what they don't know up here. You know, mm-hmm. like where we're at. Um, ironically, there is a big gun culture up here, but it's like underground. <laughs> so sure. with, with guns are treated like prohibition up here. Like, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, you, oh, you want a firearm? Oh, wow, that's cool. Don't say like That's kind of the vibe up here. We've kind of brought it to the mainstream over the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. So when I, my first I ever delivered, and I tell the story because it's, it's funny as shit. But the first class I ever delivered was a night vision class. And it took us like three months to fill it. And what we realized is that night vision was the furthest thing from, from our minds. It should have been the furthest thing from our minds. We quickly realized that um, skill-wise that the region itself was lacking. Mm-hmm. We had and spent the next two to three years just doing level one rifle, level one pistol, level one rifle, level one pistol. And then once we realized we had like 10 or 20 of those, you know, classes under our belts, then we would offer something on the more, you know, uh, high-end scale, like a level two carbine, where now we're incorporating some of the other things. And slowly but surely over the past 10 years, we built up a pretty good alumni. Uh, about four years ago, my, my one of my students, Bob, 
was like, hey, man, you know, where are you going with all this? You know, what's the what's the end goal? And I said, well, the end goal is to eventually, you know, retire from, from law enforcement and just kind of do this full time or as I as I please, you know. Mm. And that was kind of what that was kind of the, the brainchild for eventually what will become Trinity. And he's from Long Island. So originally we were looking at opening in Long Island and then we realized laws were kind of not really in our favor. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll do Pennsylvania and then we were looking at Jersey, and then when everything was said and done, I kind of like didn't want to travel anymore. <laughs> like yeah. I was traveling globally for work, and I was like, you know, I'm never home. I want to be, I want something in my backyard. Sure. And you look at the five boroughs that make up New York City. Staten Island is very different and very unique compared to the rest of the, the rest of the city. Um, we tend to be more conservative or right leaning. Mm-hmm. We have the most legal gun owners in the five boroughs combined. Mm-hmm. And we actually have rangers out here. We have a handful of rangers. We have a skeet shoot place. And then we have two uh, pretty uh, beautiful gun clubs. So when you look at the dynamic of here, it is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And when we opened up the doors to Trinity, we really didn't have a civilian um, curriculum in place because it really didn't exist. It was like, we would leave it as, we, in our heads, we were going to train military law enforcement. And then once in the blue moon, maybe offer something on, on the on the civilian side because there just wasn't a lot of gun owners. And then we took ownership in August, September. We started to, to build out the facility. And when, by the time we opened in November, somewhere between September and November is when the brewing case dropped. Mm-hmm. So our business, our business model changed from you know, training law enforcement mill to now we have this influx of civilians that pretty much came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's been an interesting growth ever since. So we went from having like 10 people a week to 25 people a week to 50 people a week. Now we're up to like 150 to 200 people a week taking the CCW class. Wow. So our resources have been completely, ta- uh, we've been completely taxed. The last Six months, we have done almost no training at all outside of CCW just to, because we're trying to handle this. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news is is that for every six six months that passes, probably those people are now becoming gun owners, and now they're looking for training. So that cycle of life has now become we're at our, our 2024 posture is to now not not to ever give up on CCW. We're going to continue to address that week after week, mm-hmm. but... The other opposite end of the spectrum is now we have legal gun owners who are just floating around with two days of training. What mm-hmm. offer? So now it's it's back to you know you know concealed pistol. It's it's uh, rifle classes. It's home defense classes. It's anything that we can now do to build up that community and take them from where they were at CCW and now take them here mm-hmm. and then take them here and eventually have them be able to integrate with some of the more higher end specialty classes that eventually we offer like night vision and stuff like that. So that's kind of the model. Uh, it's a long-term model because you obviously can't do these things overnight. You know, people are here, they tend to, um, the schedules vary. You know, you could have a Wednesday night class that's packed out. Mm-hmm. You could have a class and you get two people. <laughs> it's yeah. just, New Yorkers are like, they're always buzzing. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to get a hand, a handle on who we, who we're really training. It, it's been crazy this year. It's been absolutely crazy. Um, we cater to everyone. Um, if people come up and say, like for example, the, there's been a huge influx with the Jewish community. Um, we try to respect Sabbath, so we'll make sure we do classes that are uh, conducive to their schedule. Sure. And their, 
their culture. So awesome. we, we're doing some crazy stuff um, with being able to uh, accommodate a lot of people. you got to figure there's 18 million people here in New York City alone. Yeah, that's a lot. It's, just, it's insanity. And now we're doing, we just expanded. Now we're doing the Jersey uh, reciprocity. So now you can do your outer state in New Jersey. So we just started doing that. And then we're doing age 18. We're doing, and we've become like this monster conduit for all things firearms. And ironically, we don't even sell guns. <laughs> Which, yeah. So our, the journey for that has been nuts. Mm -hmm. Got approved by the ATF last year before opening. We had our gun license. We were going to be a SOT 7. We were going to be able to have suppressors. We were going to be able to have everything. Mm -hmm. And the holdup is actually the building itself. Our building was uh, redesigned and renovated before we before we moved in. Mm -hmm. But because it's still under construction, zoning will not allow it to be the new CFO. It will only allow it to be the previous CFO. Therefore, I, I can't get my ATF license approved. So... I've had two to 3,000 people come through here for their gun permits, get it, and then when they turn around to come back to us to get a firearm, we can't accommodate them. Yeah. So that's been a huge uh, huge setback for us that we're going to address for 2024. We think that we have uh, a lo another location that we're going to move into in mind that's a little bit better of a training uh, model, but mm -hmm. also ability to have that license uh, put into place. That's, no. awesome. That's awesome that you guys have that market opportunity right now because a lot of the country, like specifically the South and the Midwest, is on the opposite side of that spectrum. You know, there's been classes like this forever. There's been this market forever. So now with economic times getting harder, there's less of a uh, student base. There's less interest in the product side of the market because – People already have a ton of stuff or they just don't have the money for it now. Whereas in New York, this is all so new to you guys and guys are just chomping at the bit to get after it. Yeah, we, um, it's, it's hysterical because we're seeing like, you know, like every new gun owner, you know, they go through those, they go through those motions mm -hmm. of buying stuff. And like, you know, we tell them, Hey, you know, you have to, you know, take these things into consideration, but you know, they want to figure it out the hard way. So, you know, it's not, it's not uncommon to have a guy that took a class six months ago go, Hey man, you were right. I already have a, a garage bin full of holsters because I can't stand anything I bought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're starting to see like those trials and tribulations. It's hysterical because, you know, the things that we kind of put, we're trying to push out the best product possible. Mm -hmm. Make the CCW class as interesting as possible. But the reality is, it's a boring ass class. It's 18 hours of pretty much. Wee. Yeah, it's 18 hours by us. It's crazy. Wow. And it's only two hours of that is live fire. So figure that one out. Oh, wow. Going like hell to, you know, really build a solid foundation. Mm -hmm. So they do decide, all right, I got my license. Now it's time to go figure out how to use this damn thing. Mm -hmm. But they're already on a, a good path. And that's kind of like been the challenge because we're in New York. We're very, um, we're very thick headed. <laughs> sure. You know, we're, we're typical New Yorkers. We, we don't want to be told. Mm -hmm. We figure things out for ourselves. But in the end, a good majority of them that do listen they kind of come full circle. Some just take come a little quicker than others, but it's been fun, man. It's it's fun to address these classes because there's like closet tactical folks mm -hmm. like that have emerged. It's not uncommon for like we'll be in a class and like someone will come over and be like, "Hey, what do you think about this, 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 and this?" And I'm like, "Oh, oh my god! Obviously, you've been you know you've been on, you've been running around on the forums and stuff like that. You kind of have an idea what you want." 
Mm-hmm. It's cool to see those people emerge because I feel like they've been outcasted from the New York culture, mm-hmm. and now they're finally being kind of embraced. You know, you want to talk about crazy statistics? If in New York State, this was something that um, I won't mention his name because I don't I don't want to say it without his permission. But one of our one of our pretty popular politicians who uh, I have a a good rapport with, we had a conversation last year about. If gun owners, gun owners in New York alone decided to, regardless of their left or right leading uh, affiliation, decided to be on one page collectively as a unified voice, mm-hmm. it would be able to outvote every other group in New York State. Hmm. So he came to me with the intentions of, hey, you have this pretty big uh, social media following in New York. How'd you do it? I said, I don't know. I said, we just post a lot of cool, cool shit. <laughs> He's like... All right. Well, he's like, we got to figure out how to how to harness that energy. I said, well, what's the end, end goal? He goes, the end goal was to unify gun owners. That's freaking awesome. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's I said, nobody's taking that stance. Yeah, that's cool. That's something that's you know I would like to be a part of that. So it's something that's on the uh, it's on the forefront of our of our uh, to do list for 2024 because we could basically uh, push out who we need to push out. And right now, voting is huge. Yeah, the things that we're giving back here, and and fighting for. Oh my God! But there's also things that have been fought for and won. So the, you know, there's some positive things with CCW. I know uh, the most recent events in uh, California with the assault weapons ban. That's going to come and trickle back down to New York. Mm-hmm. So things are looking good, but things are also there's also things being presented that are bad. So yeah. it, we have to do uh, nix checks on ammo right now, so we can sell ammo. But we can sell out guns. Hmm. We sell a ton of ammunition. Ton. But you have to do a nix check every single time you buy a box of ammo. We have to log in the lot number. It's just an insurmountable amount of work for the volume of people that are here. Yeah. And could that get contested down the road and, and maybe given back? Maybe. But right now we jump through every hoop that the government puts our way because, you know, we're in the spotlight. Sure. We any given day, you know, somebody can walk in here and, and try to, you know, try to f with us a bit and try to shut us down. We don't want to do that because right now we're we're the only game in town. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been a hell of a run, man. It's been a hell of a run. Well, that's awesome. It's it's it in general. I think probably over the past two to three years, I feel like in urban areas, your native population is kind of starting to swing back the other way on the pendulum, as far mm-hmm. as gun rights and pride in their city and like stuff like that. I feel like the, the true, I don't want to use progression. Cause I think that may be the wrong word, but I feel like there's just a little bit of a return back to American roots in a sense in the urban areas. I agree. Uh, that, that has been gone for the past 15 to 20 years. Yeah. I, it's a cycle too. So on nine 11, I was, uh, I was still a college student. I was a junior in college. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that some of the most amazing, patriotic, awe-inspiring things I've ever seen were in the in the, in the aftermath of 9/11, and it was right here on this island. Mm-hmm. If you ever get a chance to, if you ever come to visit Trinity, I'll take you over there. And I've taken people there just to show them. But Staten Island is the borough where a good majority of your first responders live. Mm-hmm. But it's it was always been affordable. It's always been known to be affordable. So we have a you know a, a pretty good healthy mix of firemen and police officers and 
sanitation workers and you know corrections officers. We all kind of live out here because it's just it's affordable. It's either here or it's Long Island because the rest of us, you can't even park your car in Brooklyn after a shift, and nobody wants to deal with that shit. So Staten Island is where you go to have a little bit of peace of mind. And sure. on 9-11, all those guys that were home picked up, grabbed, firemen grabbing their bunker gear, cops grabbing their duty gear, and they went over the bridge. And when they went over the Verrazano, a lot of them didn't come back. And right before the bridge, there's this little piece of hollowed ground that is, it means a lot to us as New Yorkers, as Staten Islanders, and it's called uh, Angel Circle. And it was the last piece of real estate you pass at the light before you basically go over the bridge. And at the time, post 9-11, the only people going over were first responders because that's all who was allowed. Mm-hmm. You knew when a car was going over that bridge that that was somebody that was going into harm's way. Mm-hmm. The good people of San Island basically stood there and cheered the cars on. And the cheering led to candles, and the candles led to signs, and the signs led to eventually what would be turned into this thing called Angel Circle, which is... Um, Every Staten Islander that lost their life is got a picture and a little, um, a little mo- like almost like a little monument to to themselves, you know, uh, a, a tribute to them mm-hmm. in this little tiny piece of what was nothing, which is a piece of curb. Yeah. So I think that we do have a patriotic sense here in Staten Island that very few people understand. You can't drive, I would say, five blocks without seeing a street renamed after either a cop, a fireman, or someone who perished. On 9 11, and we, we don't forget very easily here. Mm-hmm. Some of the best things about Staten Island are some of the things that really you wouldn't know unless you unless I told you. Sure. Have, uh, one of the longest roads on Staten Island, which leads you to Brooklyn, is named after a Medal, Medal, Medal of Honor recipient from uh, Father Capadano. So Staten Island's been like, has this history of like military service, civil service, mm-hmm. and you know, when most people, when they think about it, when Staten Island comes to mind, it really is, people think about the dump, they think about the Jersey Shore, they think about, you know, Snooky and all that other stupid shit. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, the media has kind of purported, but the reality is that some of the most uh, selfless people uh, that I've ever lived, you know, had the pleasure of working with, they come right from here. So awesome. I, I have a lot of respect for the people over the past 20 years between who stepped up for the global war on terror right through who's taking the job now. Cause to me, you're taking a job right now with the city. I mean, you're, you're really, you're really asking for some, some interesting times. Mm-hmm. Oh. 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 Well, as the title uh, alludes to today, we're talking about <laughs> uh, information and the development of intelligence specifically for civilians, obviously something you've worked in for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2023, 2022, kind of, we've seen a shift, and we kind of talked about it before the show about how there was a basis of people that were that needed that rifle one, that pistol one, and now mm-hmm. we're seeing people shift towards a higher skill set, but not even just with firearms. Specifically, social media has brought it to light people trying yeah. to advance their own medical capabilities, intelligence capabilities, communications is a big one right now. It's mm-hmm. like it's it's like a, a complete swing from like the uh, Cold War, early days of the Cold War, where you had like this big group of ham radio operators that were all about like the civil defense plan and stuff. Now it's kind of coming back into like the 2A community about communications being important. Um, but intelligence and information is everything, even just to the baseline of a prepared citizen. Uh, so, you know, what are your kind of thoughts on just why that should matter to your average civilian? Anyone who thinks they're fighting their way out of 
full unrest scenario is is you really you you, you kind of miss the mark. <laughs> you um, there's an aspect of firearms training that's definitely relevant. Hmm. Uh, being able to recognize threats earlier, understand your, your area of operation, and being able to kind of decide right then and there, like, hey, is this a shelter in place type scenario or is this a get out of dodge type scenario? Mm-hmm. Um, I look at my borough alone. We, we are we're an island, so if in the event we can't get off the island, what's what, what's our what's our what's our egress? <laughs> you know, where do we go mm-hmm. from here? You know, when you talk about things like that, you know, you could be armed up to the, you know, uh, armed up to the gills. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, what you have to sustain. So preparedness has been something that keeps coming up. I mean, when we talk about the CCW crowds that come in here, the very first question out of their mouth typically is, A, what would you buy if, mm-hmm. you, if you were me? And B, how would you prepare? How does it change when you have a family as opposed to moving solo? So these things keep coming up, and it's come to the point where we, we finally started addressing it. So for 2024, that's our goal is to bring preparedness level uh, classes to the table to start building that foundation. And then preparedness one would lead to two, two would lead to three, three and four, and so forth. Um, the goal is to build a community of people who are understanding of the threats, understanding of their area of operation, and then understanding of where they fall in the, in the, pe- in the pecking order of violence. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a there's a harsh reality to civil unrest. If you find yourself in a position where you may you know need to bypass, uh, let's just say uh, arbitrarily uh, a, a roadblock mm-hmm. that's being done by uh, you know people with ill intent, do you have the wherewithal about you to understand that that's not something maybe you want to stop for? Maybe you want to push through. Sure. And that's where the the moral conflict comes in. That I don't know if. A lot of New Yorkers specifically out here necessarily have the stomach for, mm-hmm. uh, but it is a reality. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's, 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 a, it's a real stark contrast to what they think surviving is. Mm-hmm. And when we present it that way, they're like, look at us like, you mean we're going to run through the checkpoint? I'm like, I mean, do you want to sit there? Is your car armored? Can it sustain? <laughs> you know, or do you have your kids in the back being pulled out by their hair? Yeah. Or do you want to? Or you want to get out of get out of harm's way, you know. What, at what level of risk are you willing to take, and at what length are you willing to go to survive, yeah. and get away from danger? That's really what it's down to. And I, I just don't think people have been put in that scenario enough to really truly understand the the ramifications that come with it mm-hmm. and the responsibility. That come with it. And know? I think I oh, think stuff. there I think there is a bit of a a two-faced problem to that. I think the first being that a lot of Americans are, they are almost too fearful of potential consequences. Like some people would rather quite literally die very gruesomely mm-hmm. than then potentially be charged for defending themselves. Right. Um, and I think that's a big issue, but that leads to a much larger conversation of what is, ethically right in our own culture and the legal system and all that. Um, The second thing I think is just that in a lot of places, um, and I think the suburban areas and the places where people think they're, they're more safe than they really are is that they don't think it could ever, it it could ever lead to that. People who live in urban areas, specifically through 2020 and 2021, they Mm -hmm. understand that 
things can deteriorate very quickly um, yeah. and that anybody can be targeted. But those specifically like in suburban areas and even rural areas through that time period that we had two or three years ago, um, the average person doesn't quite understand it um, and thinks that they're immune to it. There's a couple of things to touch on what you're saying. Even before the civil unrest that we had a couple summers ago, let's take it back even further to when we had Sandy. Sandy destroyed, I mean, a good majority of the city. I actually didn't even operate out of my office for like six months. We operated out of, um, uh, I was still in counterterrorism at the time. We, we were in uh, Coney Island, but our office was kind of in the in a bad area. So we ended up having to operate out of Floyd Bennett Field. So I pretty much lived out of Floyd Bennett Field, which is like a old abandoned uh, airstrip that we have resources in. Mm-hmm. We did our ex- we did our, our escorts out of there, so we were escorting military with water and generators and cold weather gear and all that other stuff. As the aftermath of the kind of craziness that ensued kind of unfolded, and I would laugh because and within the first week there was already like people looting houses. You know, you know, houses were abandoned along the water, and obviously I live on an island, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of houses that were like within the surge area that completely decimated. And people were looting it, and people were like, that's the last of the stuff I have. So now they're sitting outside with, you know, firearms and threatening with signs and stuff like that. So it's really funny to see how quickly humanity can go from, like, one extreme to the other in a matter of days, whether that be a natural event or, or something that's, uh, you know, humanly invoked. But um, we have a phenomenon here that I, I do want to talk about. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I kind of – I don't really have a, ter- a true term for it. Mm-hmm. But I kind of coined, I want to say I coined it, but um, for some strange reason, when we have big events here in New York, people ditch their vehicles. Have you ever heard that before? No. What do you, what do you expand on that, please? So, like on 9-11, people got out and just walked and they walked home and they would just leave their car there. During Sandy, I seen people leave their cars. During the civil unrest, people get out and leave their cars. I would, I'm sure there's someone way smarter than me with a PhD from some big, you know, Ivy League school who could probably put a true term to it. Mm-hmm. But I, I call it, it's, it's walking off. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people are stuck in their car. Mm-hmm. They this chaos going on around it. And they're like, fuck this shit, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> now, what does that do for law enforcement? A, it locks up the roads. Yeah. Resources extremely hard to get to certain impact areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's consistently been, I've seen it consistently, consistently over numerous types of events over the past 20 years of working here. Now, do you think, do you think that's a response from blatantly put, you know, city people and the thought of traffic and being stuck and they're like, I'll, I'll be able to pass anything that's wrong in the road on foot. I think so. I think people just say, I don't want to be trapped in my car. Mm-hmm. I'm going to. I'm going to take measures into my own hands. I'm going to be responsible for my own awareness and I'm going to walk off. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, on 9-11, there's that famous, um, you know, the famous videos of people walking over the Brooklyn Bridge, literally walking home. (laughs) They just left their cars. Um, It's it's something I've seen and it's not something that's addressed a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have friends that when it comes to preparation, they're like, oh, well, my car is always ready to go. Okay, your car is always ready to go. What happens if your car is no longer mobile or incapable of passing onto where you're trying to get to to your agenda? Sure. Now, can you take those things on the road with you? Are you going to roll a big duffel bag behind you full of tactical gear? Yeah. Probably. You know, 
I think that there's an aspect of you should be you should be able to harden yourself, but you should also be off the off the off the radar, so to speak, too. Like I wouldn't want to go full, you know, tactical Tommy walking through New York City trying to get off the X. I'd rather be more uh, immersed into the public with the capabilities, but more clandestinely. Sure. So I just don't want to be that target because then I become a walking, uh, you know, loot package. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, pe- people that are like, oh, my plan is vehicle. Mm-hmm. Well, I just told people tend to park their cars on the bridge and walk off. Now what? How do yeah. you get your 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 20-foot Ford excursion that's loaded with every prepper thing under the sun uh, off this rock? You can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, what's the contingency for that? You know, I think that there's there's things that urban environments that present themselves that a lot of people don't consider until it actually happens. And they're like, oh, well, I wasn't anticipating that. Mm-hmm. Here, here you are. <laughs> so I'd like to see um, there's got to be somebody somewhere that's done a study that that's uh, observed this phenomenon. But it's 100 percent real and it 100 percent happens. And it's so much so that I, I don't know if you know, like the tunnels, tunnels, of towers is a big yep. run here. Mm-hmm. Reason why it was a tunnels the to towers run is because the people that were involved that went into the building, the firemen that were in their bunker here, they ran through the tunnel because there was nowhere to go. Yeah, left their cars. Mm-hmm. You know, two lane highway, uh, two lane road uh, tunnel getting into Lower Manhattan, and it was completely parked cars. So why did they run? They ran because they had to. Sure, that's the that's the lineage behind it. So that phenomenon is real. Mm-hmm. And when you find yourself in an area like New York City, where Manhattan's pretty, pretty much a, a peninsula, mm-hmm. when it's kind of you know landlocked a little bit, Long Island is an island, Staten Island is an island. What's your what's your backup plan for that? How do how are you gonna get off? Mm-hmm. You know, we have a, a tremendous amount of deer on Staten Island. Do you know why? Why? Because nobody can hunt. No, because they they well besides that, they, <laughs> they in Jersey. So we have low tide. Uh, if you go onto the South Shore of Staten Island. Uh-huh. And the channel itself, you can pretty much almost walk to Jersey. Hmm. So th- that's what the deer do because we have an abundance of uh, of wildlife here with no predators. So they walk them over and they they eat like they eat like kings out here. Yeah, if we, they could do that, if nature shows us anything, we could do that technically. Um, so so would have, rowboat maybe be a, a good idea? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so regardless of people's environment, whether they're a suburban person a urban person or even a rural person because just because you live in the middle of nowhere doesn't mean you'll never have to not leave or you know you're it's a, you're better off than someone that lives in a city on a rock but you may also have to leave you know your your farm one day um but regardless of someone's environment what are some what are some things that you would say people need to focus on initially to start developing their own area intelligence just from the general preparedness perspective I think you should be surveying your community first. Mm-hmm. Anybody can do this on their own. Mm-hmm. I think that a strong community is a community that will thrive. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm going solo, you know, Walking Dead style scenario. I think that's I think that's far fetched. Mm-hmm. I think that a community that could step up together and fill in the gaps because no one's no one's perfect. Mm-hmm. It would take a tremendous amount of money and resource and time to be able to be. A one with you know, uh, one with everything, you know, you know, one stop shop. I just don't think anybody's capable of it. You know, there are people who are financially uh, maybe capable of that and they pay for that, but I think that the average person is not. 
But when you talk about community uh, drawing together and pulling resources, if in the event of X, Y, Z, if you can get that people talking about those things, then you have a chance. I think you, you extend your longevity extensively. Um, the question is, when you live in the rurals, how close is your next neighbor? You know, as opposed to we live in suburbia, where maybe you know your neighbors are, you can basically secure a whole block. Yeah. We about that during Sandy. Like we had, um, I would come off a shift as a cop. And then when I got back to my block, we had other cops who were in between their shifts, basically patrolling our neighborhood because we had looters, you know, basically going up and down the blocks because we went about maybe 12 days without uh, power, mm-hmm. no alarms, no nothing. So people were inadvertently stepping up and doing basically security patrols, sure, and doing security runs as a cop. So it was kind of a, you know, we we're kind of getting overtasked, you know, task upon task. Mm-hmm. When you talk about the rurals. Now you're talking about extensive, extensive property. Yeah. So is that a problem? Probably. Mm-hmm. Problem too. So you know, what do you have in place? You know, do you have, uh, you know, do you have uh, trail cameras and stuff like that? Like that's another uh, game changer. But then again, what if you have no power? <laughs> so no cell phone service. So like everything goes back to what technology is still available, mm-hmm. and of that technology. Which one can I use to to, to basically um, force multiply my capability? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm kind of a sitting duck. I, I'm I always look at it like this. My kids are still young. They're kind of you know. I tell them all the time. I'm like you know when they, we talk about active shooter. Like if I'm in the mall during Christmas time by myself, compared to when I'm with my kids, my my actions on are very different. By myself, I'm I'm gonna take a little bit more of an aggressive posture when I'm with my kids. My responsibility to them and them only, the hell with everybody else. I'm going to handle, I'm going to make sure that they're safe. So I'm probably going to, then, you know, same thing applies for some of these, these large scale events. Like we have roving crowds of, uh, you know, uh, protesters moving through our neighborhood. I, I don't think I want to be part of that. I think I, I think I want, you could have the house, my house, I have insurance, burn it down for like, yeah, as long as the people that I can't replace are removed from there and on their road with me, mm-hmm. I'm you know, so there's an ex- there's a certain level of acceptable loss when it comes to trivial things like material things, mm-hmm. um, and then there's things that you know I, I, there's certain if there's things that you know you just can't live without or you need it to sustain for those days after, mm-hmm. those things should be at the f- forefront of your prioritizing of I need to be able to access this quickly. I know I can't take all my guns. I'm going to take the guns that I can grab. I'm going to grab. The things that I think are necessities, you know, my um, my kids' prescriptions, stuff like that, you know, some food, some water, some things that I need to do to potentially get off this rock, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm not going to look back, <laughs> whatever. And I think something important you mentioned at the very beginning of this was community. And I think I'll call it the Second Amendment community. I think just people yeah. in general are, are starting to realize the importance of that. And while certain political entities or members of three-letter agencies and whatnot may see it as a dangerous thing. Um, I think the idea of volunteer community groups or the resurgence of Minuteman groups and whatnot, I think those are good, especially for groups that focus on more than just the tactical stuff. Groups that are like, yeah, community defense, good, important, but what about natural disasters? What about, you know... 
train derails and the whole town has to evacuate. How do we help? How do we help the county next to us if something happens to them? Yeah. Uh, I think that's extremely, extremely important, especially for more rural and suburban areas where first responders are less dense. The community as a whole has less resources, less hands. Um, people are spread out more. I think that kind of <coughs> stuff is really important for people to focus on. For sure. Streamlining, streamlining that is, is, I think, an absolute step in the right direction for any community. So, yeah, one thing, sorry, there's a lag between us. I can't tell when who starts talking. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, one thing that I had discussed with some others on social media recently that I talked to normally is, uh, I remember, it's probably probably almost a month ago at this point, the shooting we had in Maine. Uh -huh. The guy went to several different locations. Mm -hmm. That area, that suburban town, was very, very limited on both law enforcement and EMS resources. Right. And part of the discussion that came up is how does a professional, well-organized civilian group aid in those types of scenarios? Not the scenarios that last 30 minutes and they're done, but scenarios that are multiple hours. And I, I want to gauge your thoughts on this. Kind of the consensus that it came to was not necessarily helping from the tactical perspective as far as finding this guy, right. but securing scenes where there are casualties you know, it's better for a few concealed carriers to stand by with one or two cops than tie eight cops up at a scene where there's a bunch of fire and EMS. For sure. Or, or showing up with your own self-funded medical bags, helping triage and treat people on scene. You know, if this is a scenario that plays out over four or five hours, I mean, I'm a first responder. You're uh, in this line of work. You understand that resources become taxed very, very fast. Almost instantly, right? Yeah. Almost um, for the rural area, I'll take it even a step further. So when we had the subway shooter a couple of years ago, uh, that guy, we didn't find, he actually, we never have actually found him. He basically was walking through the public. <laughs> the next, he was walking through, uh, an area of New York city where it was broad daylight and, and super populated. Mm -hmm. So we have an issue like that, even in an urban environment, the rural, the rural area is even worse. Mm -hmm. You know, now we're talking, you know, being able to hide, uh, you know, in every nook and cranny that there is. So I think there's an aspect of, of how could you bridge the gap between the community and local law, law enforcement or local resources mm -hmm. as yet to really truly be explored. Yeah. We have community outreach stuff here in New York City. It's not very good. We yeah. have a tendency as like law enforcement to be like, yeah, 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 thanks, but uh, go stand over there. And I, I don't think that's the right answer. Like you said, I if I could tie up, if I could unfree up eight gunfighters, so to speak, to go continue hunting, mm -hmm. as opposed to eight gunfighters sitting on a crime scene, yeah, absolutely, I want to try to do that. Sure. The question is, is where do you get the? How do you establish a standard? Yeah. You know, is this, is it something that should be done from a state state standpoint, mm -hmm. standpoint, or should there be some type of federal? oversight where maybe we could federalize and say, Hey, here's the standard to teach to mm -hmm. where do we go from here? And there is kind of stuff like that. You have like the cert teams. Those are, those are typically made of, um, uh, you know, civilian entities, mm -hmm. not really like extremely robust and they're not usually extremely well-trained. Yeah. So there is some, there's definitely conduits for it. Mm -hmm. It's not, um, I don't think they're being used appropriately. I think we have to tackle from that perspective at more of like the county and tri-state level. I think there'll be too much distrust if we get the state and the feds involved. Yeah, for sure. And I think there is a mindset between 
the civilian groups and more law enforcement than first responder entities that especially in this in this day and age that these civilian groups they're dangerous right-wing extremists they're all dangerous right-wing extremists you can't trust any of them don't talk to them we need to find a way to break that because there's no reason that local first responders and local you know responsible and patriotic community citizens cannot work together when things get tough yeah you may have your personal opinions about what the feds are doing or what the current administration is doing or blah, blah, blah. But at the community level, we all already live together as it is. For sure. We need to find ways to rebuild that trust and that ability to work together. And that doesn't say that you always have to work together. There is always a time to hold certain parties, regardless of whose side of the aisle it is, accountable. But generally speaking, we need to find ways to work together more and to build that trust. Right. And you do see it. like So like when there's like a search and rescue scenario, like, Mm-hmm. in a rural area communities regardless of their affiliation politically they do come together right mm-hmm. we could do it for things like that why can't we do that for other aspects of uh, uh, of different events right mm-hmm. so the, the the framework is there i think it's just a matter of we have a tendency to be like as cops like ah they're not trained they're going to be a liability but what if there was a standard if the standard there and they, you know that they're good to a certain degree to help with aspects of an event, I think there would be, they would reach for that resource more often. We kind of have it here. We have auxiliary police here, uh, and they do do you. They do get used. Uh, I just don't think they get used as quickly as possible. It's usually like tertiary type stuff where they say, "All right, now this thing is definitely going to be going on more than twenty-four to forty-eight hours." All right, up on those resources. So maybe they're just not being used fast enough in that sense. But I think there's undoubtedly a um, a necessity to build that up on a lot of different levels and definitely bring more capability, you know, give them the better training that they need, especially like during Sandy, we had swift water rescue. You know, that was like, nobody had the capability to do that. There were people that were just pulling out, you know, Zodiac boats from their garage and helping us. And like, that was a huge, huge help. But, you know, that was not orchestrated. That just kind of happened on the fly. So when you look at it from that perspective, yeah, there's definitely some things where I think civilian entities can collectively step in in the event of those type of events and, and fill their void. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think, it, I think it definitely falls on the civilians as well to make sure that they conduct themselves, present themselves in a professional manner. Because first impressions are everything. For the sure. first time your community group that nobody's ever heard of or worked with before shows up to, let's say, uh, a town that was hit by a tornado. Real, real messy stuff. You know, no power, no resources, nothing. And you're like, we're here to help. How you present yourselves, how you show up and whatnot will determine whether anybody wants to work with you from there on forever. Right. Um, I think that a lot of us that are find ourselves in leadership positions, um, whether we're business owners or we're ex-military or we're first responders and we're trying to form these community groups a lot of it falls on us um and we need to instill the same levels of professionalism with the understanding of we're working with volunteer citizens and whatnot that that kind of stuff matters and there has to be that professionalism that comes with everything 100 that could be done by streamlining and kind of laying out the groundwork for hey who do we really want to see in these groups Mm -hmm. great when people have the intentions but if you don't have the physical capability to do something 
you're more of a you're more of a hindrance. You're taking a spot of people who potentially could actually be be useful on game day. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of these groups tend to attract people who are. I don't want to pigeonhole them, but sure. Go ahead. we don't really we don't really see the the cream of the crop when it comes to that. Sure. I find that the good a good model would be like you ever see like the search and rescue volunteers that you see like up in like the rolls of like up in the Adirondacks and stuff yeah. like that. Those tend to bring out the people that actually have a capability and drive mm-hmm. through like the want to do that. You know, they actually have the physical capability, uh, uh, physical attributes that you would want in a person that can do those type of things. And they're all volunteer. Mm-hmm. So it's crazy how regionally what attracts what. I think that we're so comfortable here in some of the urban settings that like, like, ah, somebody will figure out how to save me. <laughs> like, no, no, they won't. You mm-hmm. better have your ducks in a row. I'm telling you, during Sandy, the boat pe- people with boats were like a huge thing because it was so much like, there's so much craziness that happens with flooding, especially people don't realize like underneath New York City, it's like Battery Park. Battery Park is not built on land. Battery Park is built on like a series of piers. Like you could swim under Battery Park, right? Mm-hmm. So have this flood surge, things can come put can, can push up, right? Yeah. So when you look at like manhole covers, one of the craziest things that I've ever been told, like even like going to Iraq and dealing with all the shit I dealt with there, one of the craziest things that still plagues me over all these years was during Sandy. I was standing on uh, basically the Belt Parkway in Brooklyn. Uh, we were standing on an overpass, and the floodwaters were coming in almost a mile, mm-hmm. and. We had already done, spent the entire afternoon evacuating everybody, like saying, you know, you got to leave Coney Island, you got to get out of here, you can't stay here, we have shelters for you, this is going to get hit hard, and it's going to, we're not going to be able to get to you once it hits. Mm-hmm. Of course, stubborn New Yorkers, they don't want to leave nothing. <laughs> so, you know, we got a good majority out, but we didn't get everybody. Mm-hmm. And while we're standing on this bridge, watching the, the waters basically come in, and they came in quick, um, people started putting on their lights in the second floors of their houses. And all of a sudden they're waving at us at the windows. Like, Hey, come get us. Like I just spent the last 10 hours trying to get you the hell out of here. And now I have to come get you. <laughs> so it turned into me and two other guys. We had, we ended up jumping in the water. We had a handrail fence in order to not get swept away. That's how fast the water was. <clears throat> it wasn't that it was high. It was probably like waist to chest high in certain areas. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the water was so cold, so frigid, and so quick that it would have swept you off. Yeah. So we get to the first house, and we start evacuating this family. And there's like 13 people in this house. And on the top floor is a kid with a cast from like foot to thigh. So he's just completely dead, useless dead weight. Mm-hmm. We, we start getting them quickly out. And I get back to like the equivalent of our, what's now our shoreline. And a good buddy of mine comes over and he starts fucking screaming at me. He's like, what, what were you thinking? Da, 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 da. He starts rattling off all these things that could have went wrong. And I'm like, what? And he's like, listen, he's like, New York has this like, you know, subterranean aspect to it. And what happens is it pushes manhole covers out. Mm-hmm. You could be walking what you think is down the sidewalk and the cover is gone. And you're just going to go down like fucking Super Mario Brothers and <laughs> see you again. That's going to <laughs> You're going to be sucked into the earth, the underground, you know, realm that is now New York City, and you can't prepare for that because you can't see where this where the things are. Mm-hmm. And he said that to me. He was a, he was a former ESU guy, and when he said that to me. I just 
I just remembered that for the rest of the night. And I just remember every rescue we did after that, I'm like, oh my God, like what if I go to step down and there's nothing there? Mm-hmm. Like reverse suction at that point. Like who could prepare? Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That scared the shit out of me. I, I had dreams of that for like years because I'm like saying to myself, like, man, uh, that could I was like probably, you know, within feet of these things at any given time. I just, it just didn't work out that way. Mm-hmm. Ironically, ironically, fast forward to two years ago, we had another bad storm. Not quite as bad as Sandy. But I'm, uh, I decided to, I live on the water. So I decided that I was going to take my kids and take them to my sister's house because she lived more uh, elevated. Mm-hmm. Just didn't have a good feeling of it. I had all the earmarks of what could have been another water tragedy. I was like, screw this shit. We're getting out of here. Mm-hmm. I live with my parents. My parents are elderly. I said, mm-hmm. you know what? let me get them out next. So I get my kids out of there. I come back to get my parents. And uh, my dad is a typical old stubborn Italian. He's like, ah, I'll be fine. I'll go down with the house. He goes, he's giving me the whole I lived a good life type you know, type speech. And I'm like that. I'm like, this is ridiculous. We, we have the truck. Let's get out of here. As I'm fighting with my father, my mother is tapping me going, Joe, there's a woman in the street. So I turn around and I look out the door and there's a literally a woman whose car is up on its side and she's hanging on to the window. And she's slowly being dragged under the car. She's losing her grip. Knowing what I don't know from Sandy, I know, thankfully, it's in front of my house. I know exactly where the sewer caps are. So I basically do a 90 degree out and a 90 degree toward her because I said, well, if I'm going to get flushed anywhere, I'm going to get flushed towards her. So now, you know, experience being a little bit, you know, you know, you know, now 2020 because I've been down that road before. I end up getting to her. I grab her. I bring her into my house and she only speaks Arabic. <laughs> in my. <laughs> trying to explain to her like hey are you okay you know your family blah 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 and she's telling me that she her heart is palpitating mm-hmm. and she's saying that she has pills i said well i said you have what do you have she's trying to tell me high blood pressure i said so where are the pills she goes they're in the car i'm like well your car is now in the bay I said, <laughs> so i take my uh, i take her and i said ma i said we got we got to take her to the hospital i don't want her dying in the house i said let's get her out of here so we, at the time, I had a, a Tacoma, which kudos to Toyota. Um, the car worked. The truck did exactly what they say they're supposed to do. Um, I throw this woman in my car. My mother gets behind her, and she's just vomiting all over my car. <laughs> and we're <laughs> what's really more of like a five- or six-minute drive to the hospital is now taking us like 30 minutes because there's, you know, like debris literally floating down the street. Like we're talking telephone poles over with – you know, all the, all the electricity, like you had no idea, you had no idea what we were driving through. Mm-hmm. We buy a house. I'm old school. My, my family's old school. We don't curse in front of our parents, but I'm basically white knuckle driving down this main thoroughfare to get to the hospital. And in the chaos, I curse. I, I said, I drop an F-bomb. I'm like, fuck. And all this crazy shit. My mom slaps me and she's like, there's ladies present. <laughs> So I always, I always say that story because it's just like you, you, when you get into these scenarios, like it's just kind of like one of those things like where it's like, wow, <laughs> like in the aftermath of it, you look back and uh, we get to the hospital. We pull the lady out of the car. We get her into the hospital and my mom goes and like sits down and like in like the waiting area. And I look at her. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, well, what about the girl? I said, what about her? I'm like, don't get attached. I'm like, first response. <laughs> 
get the hell back on the call. Let's go get daddy. Make sure the kids are okay. <laughs> like she's like ready to prepare, like you know, to sit down with them. I'm just like, no. I'm like, you, we got other things to do. And uh, I end up flooding the engine on my truck. But for some strange reason, no matter what that thing we threw at that truck, kudos to Tacoma owners. I know it's like cliche to have one. Mm. Really do do their trick. If I had a snorkel, I'd still have that truck today. So, <laughs> other than that, my, if I, if I show, next time I see you, I'll show you videos. The water was over the top of the hood of the car, and the car still kept driving. Damn. Crazy. If I had a snorkel, I, you know, the car would have been fine, but I, I didn't have that. You still own a Tacoma? Yeah, I, I don't own a Tacoma anymore. I'm actually, uh, I have a passport. So now the next the next car is going to have all those attributes. So it's definitely, there's two scenarios in less than 10 years that I would have been fine if I had it. So, I mean, that's good probability for me. Yeah. You know, some people, they decide to buy these things. They don't even live in an area where there's even potential for flooding. But there, there really yeah, always is. Mm-hmm. As long as there's rain doesn't matter if you live in the flats you have the potential if there's low-lying area there is a potential for, uh, for swift water mm-hmm. something to consider absolutely i you know it all comes down to money fitness and understanding i think when it comes down that's really like the three things that you kind of got to wrap your head around and like once you've decided on those three those three things are kind of like all with, you know, in balance to be able to perform and be able to procure the things that you need. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, is how willing am I able, how willing am I to do all these things to prepare? Because it's really, you know, there comes a morality aspect to it in the, in the long run. Now, how, how capable are you and how willing are you to get where you need to go and, and basically uh, traverse anything that gets in your way? Mm-hmm. That's the very thing. Yeah. That's, you know, that's a morality issue. And I think that uh, I don't think people sometimes even have the stomach for that. So we see it. We've seen it a lot of times. I've seen uh, there was a scenario a few years ago where a man was on, I want to say it was the West Side Highway in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. He, he either cuts off a motorcycle or a motorcyclist who was riding with a gang of other motorcyclists. Mm-hmm. And they start beating him through his windshield with the helmet. Right. And eventually they get strikes on him. So there comes a point where the kid, I guess he has family in the car, he decides to haul ass and take off. Mm-hmm. And in that time, he knocks over people on bikes and runs them over. So now it's a, now it's a crime, right? Now it's crime on one side, crime on the other. Uh, I probably would have made that decision a lot sooner. Yeah. I would have made that decision a lot sooner. I would have lived with it. Mm-hmm. But he ended up getting uh, some, pretty, some pretty bad, severe injuries, which could have almost taken him out of the fight. Like, don't let it come to that. Just yeah. get off the X. Get off the proverbial X that we all talk about. Get to where you got to go and then make your notifications. Hey, I just ran over four people. I'm in this location. I'll turn myself in. However, let me explain to you why. Yeah. And then go from there. What yeah. ended up happening in him? Did he have any charges pressed against him? Yeah, I got to look it up. I'm pretty sure he got off. He got he, off? That's yeah, good. Yeah, on video. And the video clearly shows that they impeded his motion and they forced his hand. Yeah. So, but I would I would li- I would definitely like to pull that back up. Ironically, I asked the same question to the CCW uh, folks, mm-hmm. and I tell them I'm like, you know, shooting, getting involved into a, a deadly physical force issue is not like the movies. It's not like cops like get into a shooting during their shift and then later on that night they're, you know, toasting beers like, oh man, today was a crazy day. That doesn't really, that's not real. 
yeah. you know, do that. Like your next three to four days are completely going to be inundated with going to the hospital, making sure you're good, making statements, talking to lawyers, talking, you know, you, your life is over for the next 48 to 72 hours. So don't think that it's just like some, you know, you're going to shoot somebody, holster up, and that's like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You know, you're, you're going to be going through um, the trials and tribulations of post-shooting. And that's something that we initially didn't think of here for Trinity, but eventually it came, it, you know, the question came up like so often that we were like, you know what? We need to provide like a resource. So we actually keep a, a lawyer on retainer. Nice. Specifically for if one of our members gets involved in something, your first que- your first call should be to your family that you're okay. Your second phone call should be to us. That's yeah. what we And then we'll tell you where to go from here. And you get shooting in law enforcement, you have all those resources that come to your aid, so to speak. You know, as a civilian uh, holder, you really don't. Yeah. So where do you go from there? So, Do you ever foresee a point in time where in our own legal system, and it's going to vary very much by state, where the ability for one to use violence to protect themselves is seen as more acceptable and the process that follows is less traumatizing to the individual. Say in those instances where three or four people break into your house, in some states, there are very, very definitive lines where you're allowed to use deadly force. Yeah. And if you, even if they're still in your house, if they're outside of that line, you're not allowed to. Or, you know, protesters or a roadblock, you get stopped, people are beating on your car window. There are lines where violence is only acceptable in this very narrow lane. So do you ever foresee the legal system changing that in a sense? Kind of a, kind of a sense back to consequences um, are a real thing. Yeah. I I think laws will adapt to scenarios that are given Mm. the same problems we had we have today aren't the same problems we had 30 years ago 50 years ago 75 years ago so but our law is based around a lot of that stuff so it's like as law and technology let's talk about technology even as technology becomes more uh, available mm-hmm. that's law you know ironically the company my original company was called condition gray and everyone's like well why gray most of my early career in counterterrorism was done dealing with stuff uh, implementing technology that wasn't really it, it didn't exist right yeah so we had to figure out how to use it for good in law enforcement and we were playing in a very gray area basically we were comfortable enough to feel this stuff with the hopes that we didn't become case law <laughs> that's kind of how we approached it mm-hmm. and i think that as the ccw rollout continues to um evolve eventually there's going to be scenarios like, let's be honest, New York is a very target-rich environment right now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's scenarios that have never happened before happening to people who carry firearms, both on the good guy side and the bad guy side. Mm-hmm. And some of these scenarios are going to change law because it's something that haven't been um, – it hasn't happened yet, so therefore they don't, it hasn't been addressed yet. But now it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. There's such a high probability of – people here in New York getting involved in stuff because right now you have a criminal a, a, a criminal entities who have been basically lawless for years. Most of it's because of, you know, basically lack of uh, being able to convict. Uh, a lot of people being, you know, churned out, you know, going through the system and right back on the street. 
So they have no, they have no care. They have no fear of the system. Mm-hmm. They also have never been contested, right? They've been basically trampling over people because they could, because a lot of people here couldn't defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, as the rollout continues, the, the statistically, I can't say that word, the probability is, is that the more we push out CCW holders, the more likely a criminal is going to come face to face with one of them. And those are going to be the pivotal moments in gun culture here in New York City that are going to change one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Most likely with New York, it's going to be a shooting that goes, that's borderline, right? Yeah. Was it a good shoot? Was it a bad shoot? It's going to become highly contested. Um, it's probably going to put a kibosh on applicants going forward. They're going to say, whoa, 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 we need to, because that's always what they do. They always say, oh, knee-jerk reaction. Let's stop what we're doing so this doesn't happen again until we can get our hands on it. So I, I tell people all the time right now, I'm like, get your permit while you can, because that, that incident's going to happen soon, sooner than later. And we're going to have uh, a, a true introspective look by the hierarchies of that make the rules who are going to say, all right, did we do something wrong that, that could have prevented this? And of course, the answer is going to be no, but we're going to go through those trials and tribulations again. Mm-hmm. I think I think a good example of that, as controversial as it is, maybe not amongst you know the listeners of this podcast, but in general, is like the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he was 17. He wasn't 18. He lived 15 minutes away, not five minutes away. At the end of the day, he was chased by a bunch of pedophiles and woman beaters that were burning down a city. And it was like, all right, how does this case play out? Because it determines so much moving forward. Yeah. Oh, it sure does. It sure Uh, does. But I kind of want to transition a little bit. um, And this will kind of help us move into the other topics we want to talk about. Um, Since it's fresh, uh, I kind of will talk about... Not necessarily the finer details of the Israeli-Hamas conflict right now, but maybe more of the stuff that affects us here at home um, and things that people should be aware of and kind of how it provides lessons to people in developing their own area intelligence. Yeah. So, and we talked about it, got a little bit into the weeds with it. Mm-hmm. Hamas. They are, they've been around since longer than you and I have been around in this mm-hmm. case. Uh, and they will be around for a long time thereafter. They are not a fly-by-night organization by any means, and they are extremely well-organized and extremely well-funded. That being said, there's a document floating around on uh, open source. I'll send it to you, and you can share it with your listeners. Cool. Um, that talks about some of the pre-operational work that went into one of the uh, checkpoint attacks. Mm-hmm. It's been recovered. It's been explore- exploited heavily by analysts and people who have pretty good understanding of um, – of the language and they were able to translate a lot of a good part of it uh, for what it's worth. And there's a piece to this particular document that always stands out to me. And one of them was they were able to count the amount of soldiers active mm-hmm. soldiers reserve, potential retirees who may still carry. And then they went into the detail of, and anybody else who may have a carry aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And, in Israel, people controversially, uh, people think, or conversely, people think that Israelis uh, have a, a big two-way support. It's actually not the case. Mm-hmm. Either you're military, or conscript, or you're not, or you're retired. So there's not a huge amount of CCW like we have here in, in, in the states. And I think that should be noted that the enemy takes notice of that stuff. Mm-hmm. They 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 considered it such a high priority that it made it into their 
final document prior to a, a large-scale uh, magnificent attack on their end. So if they're, they're taking the, the uh, painstaking, um, going through the painstaking process of counting down to the very, very last firearm, that tells you that if they had to do that here, how would that fare? And we've seen that with active shooters at schools and stuff before in the past. Certain yep. manifestos and documents that come out, you know, some of those active shooters weigh what his response times looks like in that area, how many resource officers were at that school, and so on and so forth. So, it, it, yeah, it's relevant. Oh, big time, big time. And that's if the if your enemy is looking at you from those from that perspective, you should be looking at your area from that perspective as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's a two way street of information that. As, as, as somber as it is to consider how potentially armed an enemy could be, to be able to counter that, and you need to understand the threat. I think that um, right now in New York, I think we're extremely outgunned when it comes to bad guys over good guys, mm-hmm. um, but that's changing. So that this question that you just asked, in five years, I may have a different answer. Sure. But right now, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, now we're outmatched, now we're outgunned. Um the second piece of that puzzle is, and this is for your New York listeners, um, you are a person with a firearm, right? Mm. And historically, the only guys that carry guns were bad guys and off-duty cops. Yeah. Now, you are this new variable, and you have this young, overworked, uh, over, uh, you know, mentally taxed workforce of cops that are just trying to get through their shift and being, you know, dragged into overtime left and right. They're exhausted. Mm-hmm. Now you're presenting a firearm in the public and you get challenged because you're going to get challenged because <laughs> you are a person with a firearm. You're a variable mm-hmm. um, on these jobs. You have to understand that they are, you're a threat to them until they deem otherwise. Right. Mm-hmm. And the potential for a uh, uh, deconfliction, the potential for a conflict has never been greater than it is now. And your training is going to ha- allow you to walk away from that unscathed or, Lack of training is going to put you in harm's way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, doing the right thing, brandishing a firearm, situating, uh, uh, calming a, a certain event is still going to, it doesn't end there. It's only the beginning because now you have the cavalry coming in and you are a problem until they deem otherwise. And I think that people that are going through the, the process of CCW, I can't uh, impress upon them enough how important it is to understand the, the, the post-actions of deconfliction uh, and keep yourself safe because this is going to happen quick, fast, and it's going to be very crazy. Mm-hmm. And, and we're talking even amongst other CCW holders. Mm. You may be Now you find yourself in a scenario where in a mall or in an area, you may have multiple people holding firearms, which ne- has never happened before. Yeah. And if they all come out, it's going to be like the OK Corral for mm-hmm. – a hot minute until people can determine who's good, bad, and, and everything else. And I think that those scenarios plague me mentally uh, more than anything because, you know, like these things happen super quick, mm-hmm. very, very quickly. And deconflictions for me, it's easy. I make deconfliction products. Yeah. I in the, in the in the course of my work where I'm a guest in everybody's backyard, I think I have certain tools to give me a fighting chance to make sure I don't get shot by blue on blue. But these are vetted products. These are things that are, you know, by license only, by you know, credential only, mm-hmm. with the hopes that you know whoever whoever's neighborhood I'm playing in, they say, oh shit, that's a, that's a cop, no problem. 
let me just, you know, let me just get through this scenario. Let me get through this, this, this event. Mm-hmm. With the civilian population, you're not required anything. You're yeah. just a guy with a gun. Mm-hmm. There's no shield. There's, there's no police beanie. There's no placard. There's no sleeve. There's nothing. You're just literally a man with a gun. Mm-hmm. And you are a part of the problem until I deem you otherwise. Sure. So play, play along. And uh, if you, if uniforms or non-uniform police you know, uh, step into the scenario, you have to understand that they're doing what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And it's up to you to to ensure that you listen and follow follow to the TL law what they're saying to make sure that you don't become part of the problem. Mm-hmm. That scares me more than probably anything. Mm-hmm. On the Hamas front, and, and we could just kind of, I guess, tie it into international terrorism as a whole. Since the Israeli-Hamas conflict has spun back up, mm-hmm. would you say there is truly a, an elevated threat for terrorism in the Western world, or would you say it's just more of the same because it's always so high? It's it's always high. Yeah, it really is. I, I think that people saying first and foremost, Western ideology is we live by the clock, die by the clock, right? Mm-hmm. You oh, what time is our meeting today? It's eleven o'clock. Okay, I'll t- I'll talk to you ten minutes before. Make sure we got contracts. Like we're Americans. Like we live and die by the watch. Mm-hmm. We're fighting an enemy who traditionally could give a shit about time, right? Yeah. So whereas we say, oh, it's been a long time since we've had a terror attack, uh, that's not even a that's not even a thought in that realm, right? Mm-hmm. So oh, it's been twenty years, it's been ten years, it's been this, it's been that. It's that is irrelevant. You're completely um, misunderstanding your enemy if you think that's the case. Mm-hmm. So are we at a constant state of uh, hypervigilance? Yes. Mm-hmm. Could we be? Yes. Um, but is there any um, litmus test for predicting when, if and when? If that was the case, we'd be, you know, I'd be playing lotto, you know? <laughs> so there is no uh, rhyme or reason. Now, that being said, sympathizers. And we're talking not FTOs, not foreign terrorist organizations. I think that those take a little more time. Um, and obviously, clearly it did because it took over two years for them to figure out the Israeli attack on the 7th. Mm-hmm. Um when we're talking about that kind of stuff, I think that there's there's the chance for interdiction from your your terrorism units globally, like your intelligence units. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're talking about what's potentially a sympathizer who didn't make it through the ranks or was kind of shunned, because you know that those people exist, right? Mm-hmm. People who are here stateside, they are trying like hell to get involved, and they are being basically told, you know, go kick rocks. Uh, but then the minute they do take up arms, what is the first thing the, the organizations do? They go, "Hey, good job, brother!" Right? Yeah. So they don't want they don't want the they don't want the heat on them because they don't like the way they're going about trying to get indoctrinated, mm-hmm. trying to get involved. So they push them back in hopes that they do something on their own, and then when they do, they they basically say, "Hey, good job." Those people are out there, um, and there's probably more and more growing daily because of all the information that's being put out there. You know, pro, you know, pro one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So people who are have malleable minds who are currently choosing a side, and if they don't like the the route it's going, could you see people take up arms or conduct something or semi spectacular? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe. I think mm-hmm. we're not done with the. I think we're not done with the vehicle attacks. I think that those are going to be hot and heavy. I think that's a proven tactic. Mm. 
has been very successful overseas and, and especially in Europe. I think that we're going to see some of that. The there's a little bit of a controversy with that because you can't just take down a vehicle that easily, especially in an urban environment. It's not that, you know, even if you do uh, render a, a good shot to the driver, you still have a, you know, 5,000 pound missile that's going to, you know, sitting at speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that, that creates uh, challenges in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And we saw, we saw one here. We sort of actually, we've seen a few here. Um, the one that we had where, I went down the West Side Highway and killed a bunch of tourists. That one cracks me up because it wasn't New Yorkers who were killed. It was, I think, I believe it was Belgian tourists that came off the bus and were killed. Um, had it been New Yorkers, I think it would have probably gotten a little bit more attention. Yeah. Um, it's it's human life loss regardless, but for some strange reason, it just didn't have the impact on people that it should have. Mm-hmm. That was a legitimate terrorist attack. Yeah. You know, what a devoted, uh, dedicated enemy who thought had a well thought out plan. So do you you foresee, uh, FTOs that are stateside having the true capability to pull off anything like October 7th here in the United States? Actually, that's hard to compare because Israel is like the size of, you know, a single state here in the United States. True, very true. Um, but and, the the entity of it. Um, I think there's enough people here to do something spectacular. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're in a position where they want that smoke just yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, something to be said with regards to this on a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. We spent the last. 20 plus years in Afghanistan taking the fight to the enemy on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And, and in a matter of days, we just took the boot right off their neck, right? We just mm-hmm. said, all right. And that became a very, that was a launching pad for a lot of people who had aspirations of fighting Americans, right? Mm-hmm. And then we just picked up and left. So we gave them the ability to a maneuver and move about freely again. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is we took, we were geographically convenient, you know, like you, you don't get date girls and that aren't ge- ge- geographically convenient because it's not financially or fiscally responsible. Well, same thing with fighting. So we were in their backyard and now we're not. Mm-hmm. So you go to fight bad guys, you know, they're, pers- they're proverbial bad guys. Mm-hmm. You go to Israel, right? Because now there's no more conflict to fight Americans and infidels. So we... There's that. Yeah. Uh, and if not that, then where else? Where else can you find us? Probably you'll see an uptick in Europe. Mm-hmm. And then maybe an uptick here. Interesting. Um, fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Fucked up. Um, there's no shortage. I say this, and I think I said this during your class. There's no shortage of assholes. Yeah. At all. There's no shortage. Um, I think even an attack like this is probably reinvigorated uh some of the attraction to it you know mm-hmm. so you might see you know the, the reality is that these groups are fractured right even like within aq right aq has if you're in Mauritania, if you uh if you are all these groups right they're kind of like independently operating mm-hmm. right so there's no like yeah 
Bin Laden was good in a lot of ways because he kind of everything had to go through him, and now yeah. they're all running independently. Yeah. Um, so the reality is, is there's no predictability. There's less predictability, not no predictability, sure. but predictability. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news is, is that they can't get on the same page. Like there's there's groups that won't that fight with other groups because you know they have they have a, a, a confliction amongst them. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Um, could there ever be a time where there's a unified front on their end? Maybe. I think we've started to see that in Iraq right now because there were several uh, jihadist-style groups in Iraq, and now they have, I believe it's called the Islamic Resistance of Iraq, mm-hmm. and they've all come together with essentially the center idea of, you know, let's get the Americans and other Westerns out of here since the October 7th attacks, and we've seen well over 60 now attacks by both, you know, rockets and ground forces on American forces yep. in Iraq and Syria, and now we're seeing him, you know, in the Gulf around Yemen. Right. Right. So a unified front or uh, the, what's the overall goal for any aspiring jihadi? And that, that's a global caliphate, right? That's something that pre, pre 9-11 you heard, you know, muttered in, um, in different channels. And then post 9-11 with some of the bin Laden um, manifestos, he spoke of a global caliphate, mm-hmm. and the unified Uma that would basically take on take arms and eventually convert, right? That's mm-hmm. that's like the long term goal for everyone, right? Um, is this the catalyst for it? Uh, I don't know. Is Israel the catalyst for that? Maybe, maybe. Um, kind of terrifying to think if it is, mm-hmm. um, because that's not just an Israeli problem. That's a that's everyone's problem. Yeah. Um, the litmus test for that would be Europe. So right now we're kind of isolated geographically. Mm. Uh, it's a little easier to get to Europe than it is to get to here. So will you see it in Europe first? Probably. Uh, with bleed over eventually going everywhere else. But I just don't know if logistically things are in place. I think this is more of a when a time presents itself kind of, kind of place for something large scale like that or you know, FTO supported. Yeah. Again, maybe somebody has the the funds and the ability and the know-how and the drive who has been supporting that and just putting pieces in, in place all these years. Who knows? That's something for the, uh, for the Bureau to kind of figure out. Yeah. I so. think, I think one of the big problems we'll see with this conflict will have a lot less to do with Israel and Palestine and Hezbollah and Iran and all that. I think we'll start to see more of it causing, internal disputes and we kind of see that not as much in the u.s right now but really more so in europe um, and i think are the recent events in ireland are a good example of it that there is too much internal uh dispute between political sides right now that where the more once in a lifetime and global events continue to happen it, it stokes that fire um, yeah. For the longest time, specifically Europe, was very open to refugees um, and immigration and all of that. And they're like, you know, send us your sick, your poor, so on and so forth. 10, 15 years down the line now, France, Germany, the UK, now Ireland, mm-hmm. they're seeing uh, maybe that wasn't the best idea. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not to say that you know, there's anything against refugees per se or that people aren't people, but uh, there's definitely some, you know. Yeah ideology differences there and cultural differences um 
and that some people just cannot assimilate to what was a civilized society. I think you see the more nationalist, and I don't mean that in a wrong way. I mean that in like a true definitional way, mm-hmm. you know, saying we are fed up with this. We're tired of the crime. We're tired of the random rape. We're tired of the abuse of tax dollars. We're done with this. And then yeah. you have the other side of the aisle of, of the same national style people just on the other side of the political spectrum going, no, 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 that's racist. You can't say that. We're going to bring more of them here now. And it's it's creating problems. Um, <laughs> and I think we even see that here in the U.S. Maybe not quite as heavy as Europe right now, but we still have the same problem here. Yeah, it, it's it's a little different overseas. Like I know Italy has like basically said enough's enough. Mm-hmm. They started taking boats and pushing them back. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, Literally, not not that's not metaphorically. They literally have said enough's enough. Um, the pushback's good because it, it, it gets the conversation going, but it also creates hostility. Mm-hmm. New York is a funny place. Um, in this building, as we speak right now, we have when I say every almost every ethnicity, race, and religion represented, and we all coexist gratefully. Mm-hmm. It's kind of different here, you know. Um, Right next door is an Albanian barbershop. Next door is a media firm with uh, both Israelis and Palestinians working side side by side. Mm -hmm. Uh, Downstairs, we have staff members who are Muslim. We have staff members who are white, who are black, who are Asian. We, New York is kind of, it is a melting pot. And there is something to be said about that, Mm -hmm. uh, where we could all conversely sit in a room and and, and break bread together. and, And these things don't even come up. Yeah, you know, they don't even come up um, at all. Mm-hmm. No, if it's for lack of, I don't want to see where the conversation goes, or if it's for, I'm just more accepting. I've, I have, I have uh, assimilated to being part of this culture. Mm-hmm. It's something to be said about that. We've been pigeonholed numerous times where the media came in to speak to us about the unrolling of CCW, and I had a, a, a female reporter who clearly her agenda was. The only people who own guns are, you know, chubby middle-aged white white guys, which ironically I am. So, <laughs> I'm like feeding her stereotypes, so she probably couldn't wait to like interview me. And then I take her to go meet the class, and it's like everything but that. It's everything yeah. but right. It's mm-hmm. black. It's white. It's your Asian. It's you know everything in between. And like on cue, a guy stands up from Poland, and who's like, yeah, you know, I'm a naturalized citizen. I'm now, um, now I'm an American, and it's my right to hone a firearm because historically being disarmed doesn't get you anywhere. He tells them. And her agenda just went, like, right off the fucking cliff. And I just remember seeing her face, like, you know, like, looking at her like, oh, sorry. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's what's here. These people are, they have, whatever their reason is for being armed, whatever you may think it may be, it's probably not. It's Everybody's got their own opinion on it mm-hmm. and reasoning for it. And that's what makes the Second Amendment beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful Absolutely. thing. So be it. That guy got up. I will never live in a country that could be disarmed. <laughs> that's basically what he said. And it just shut her right up. You know, her whole attitude changed. That's not the first time that happened. Mm-hmm. There's an article from like 10 years ago when I was doing a, um, I was doing a class out in Long Island and Vice came out to talk to us. Mm-hmm. And it was right after the Pulse nightclub shooting. So it was about, you know, would the Second Amendment, would the firearm community embrace gays taking up arms and protecting mm-hmm. And they send me uh, two reporters and a, and a photographer, 
and they come to my class and I could see that there was obviously clearly a potential agenda uh, in inbound, right? Sure. At the time, I had a RSO who was an Army Purple Heart recipient. Mm-hmm. She was a police officer who now works, I think, for the Department of State. Uh, and she was openly gay. Mm-hmm. So they start talking to her and they quickly realize that here is a member of who you're, uh, who you're trying to pigeonhole me into saying doesn't exist within our community, mm-hmm. but she does exist and she's very good at what she does and she's part of our staff. Yeah. And that agenda went again right off the cliff. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we find ourselves in these weird predicaments, uh, where people try to label the gun community, but the reality is, is that we are, we embrace everybody. The only thing we, we really think about it as gun owners, the only thing I have a, a problem with is just don't be irresponsible. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. As long as you put your, your guns are safely tucked away where they're not accessible by children, you're not doing anything foolish or irresponsible, I don't care who you sleep next to. I could care less. Do sure. you. Your life is your life. That's the best part about being here. Mm. Hey, are you, are you owning guns responsibly? Are you using them responsibly? Are you training so that if in the event you need to use it, you are a person who's an attribute, not a, not a com- complete societal mess by bringing the thing out. That's all we care about. And just let us, let's, we could all coexist very, very nicely if all those things are met. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people have agendas. They want to, they want to make something into something that really, truly doesn't actually exist. At least sure. it doesn't exist, you know? Yeah. But crazy uh, stuff, man. You know what I mean? It's crazy stuff. In regards, and we talked about it a little bit before the podcast, uh, yeah. the border. Obviously, another controversial topic. Um, yeah. Big for self preparedness and information and stuff. You know yeah. what? What does what does the reality of the border really look like, and, and what threats does it present? It's it's as porous as as it can be. Mm-hmm. It's for, there's people that are being processed, being vetted, and they're making their way into a, a neighborhood near you. And there are people who are crossing completely un, uh, unchallenged who are finding their way into a neighborhood near you as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge with that lies is that people who have ill intentions can clearly cross, mm-hmm. right? Just, just, let's just call it what it is. Um, I can tell you that there used to be an OTM list many, many years ago. And OTM stood for other than Mexican. It was a, a report that was published probably like CBP or like Border Patrol years ago. Hmm. I would tell you the breakdown of denomination of, of breakdown of nationality of people crossing that were non-Mexican. Mm-hmm. And that number like quadrupled, you know, over the years. So now it's not even like it's not even a statistical fact anymore because it's impossible to keep track of it. Mm-hmm. So that should be a pretty good indicator of what's coming to a town near you. The flip side to it is there's a double-edged sword. You could either, like Staten Island's putting up the fight saying, we don't want you here, go back to wherever, right? Mm-hmm. Or just come here. I understand that, um, but you just basically solidified who they're going to align with, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to stay communal, and they're going to align with the people who brought them here and gave them the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Or you can embrace the community and say, hey, we know you went through hell to get here. Wouldn't wouldn't be what I something I would do, but now you're here, so let's 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 talk about what goes on here, mm-hmm. and come into your not into your homes per se, but you bring them into the fold, right? Mm-hmm. You bring 
through whether it be via uh, a religious entity, like maybe it's a church gathering, and you make them that way, or you have job opportunities for them, and you give them jobs based off of their pre-existing whatever they did in, in their home country. Like I would love to hire. I, I, when we had the um, the Afghan refugees coming in, I was trying like hell to hire former commandos, the staff Trinity. I knew that people who had great skills. I knew that there were people that were going to end up in the, in the in the in the metropolitan area. Why should they just? Why should those skills go unused? Right? Mm-hmm. Great. You know, you've been at war for twenty years. You probably have some tremendous training, different perspective. What a better way to embrace you coming over than being able to continue to give back on that lane, right? Mm-hmm. No conduit for it. I, I tried. I literally was working the Afghan missions, and I'm like, hey, is anybody like doing job placement for these guys? Like, we're bringing over some really you know talented folks, but there's no conduit for it. So same thing is, is with the immigrants coming over right now. Like, there's to be there's probably some talented people that are amongst that mm-hmm. uh, skills that could benefit the community. Mm-hmm. And and instead, we're pushing them away. About maybe surveying them. Maybe there's something maybe we want to bring to the table here. Obviously, what the media paints is going to determine a lot of people's kind of mindset on the topic and whatnot. Um, from an outsider looking in, because I live in the middle of the woods in Kentucky, so none of this none of this affects me immediately. No. Um, but it just seems like. Well, there probably is a lot of truth to what you just said. It seems like the system is not built or the infrastructure is not big enough to handle the influx that we're seeing and it's caused it, it, it in itself may cause more issues yeah um, there's not enough housing there's not enough jobs especially in a community in a economy that is already um cutting back on the workforce things are getting more expensive um, right. so you know how, how do we i guess i guess as you know, just as our own communities, how, how do we how do we address that? How do we fix that? Where is the balance? I saw two days ago, they're giving families a stipend if you take in an immigrant family. A fucking stipend. Like, that's, that's pretty outrageous if you think about it. You know, and, you know, it puts, um, you know, it just puts you in a position where now you are offering, you're telling us this problem and you're telling us to fix it <laughs> as opposed to the government stepping in and saying, hey, we're going to give them this accommodation. Mm-hmm. So you'd rather pay me money to take in a family that realistically, you know, what do they bring to the table? Do they, do they have rent? Can they pay rent? Do they provide anything to the community? Nothing. Mm-hmm. It's That's a crazy situation. And for it, now here's the problem with it. Mm-hmm. It's not like we've been handling this for so long that we've taken in a good influx and now we're having a problem. Just starting, and we're already at that problem. So that's a big that's a big deal. That's a big that's an absolutely big deal. Yeah, but that to me is uh, uh, a problem that we're immediately already saying that we don't have anywhere to put anybody, and that's that's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely uh-huh. terrifying. You're willing to get, take people in my house, my 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 private domain? Uh, that's kind of a tricky one. Yeah, I, I can't can't say I'll be I'll be doing any of that. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I would be hesitant enough just to bring random Americans into my house, uh, right. you know, let alone <laughs> nationals that who know what, when, where, why. Um, you know, because you got to take into consideration your own families, your own life, and whatnot. You know, it's it's easier said than done to just say, "Yeah, I'll open my doors." Like it's it's not that easy. And I think a lot of 
Democrat uh, led cities who said for many years, you know, bring on the refugees, you know, we'll take them in and whatnot. Once they finally got there, they're like, oh, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, right. This is a, a unsolvable problem. And I think that's probably fair to call it. It is an unsolvable problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when it's, it's not clear. <laughs> There's no clear path. I, I don't see a clear path being presented by any entity. And it's actually kind of hysterical that our current mayor has actually, you know, changed his, he's changed the course of his perspective. Whereas uh, during his initial um, you know, time in office, it was like, yeah, bring them all in. We're all inclusive. Bring, bring everyone you want. We're a sanctuary city. Now he's like, you know, pump the brakes. We don't want, <laughs> I have nowhere to put them and you're, you're, you're draining my resources. Yeah. That switched really quickly, mm-hmm. really, really quickly. So crazy, crazy stuff, man. I think it's also hard to grasp how many people are truly here now. I mean, to think quite literally millions, that's a huge number. That is, it's an unfathomable number, really. Yeah. Um, on top of a country of already over 350 million people, known people. Um, it's crazy. It's, it is, right. it is crazy. Um, and, and there's no taxes being paid. There's no, you're draining, not only they're not paying taxes and contributing financially, but you're also draining, uh, with, with, um, stipends and, uh, and, and, you know, and other provisions that have been provided to you at the expense of you, both you and I, mm-hmm. so you're, you're paying down in Kentucky and my taxes here in New York are contributing to this. So it's like, we're already being taxed to the point of, I mean, to live in New York is a grind, mm-hmm. the actual living conditions of being able to, you know, to try to get to anywhere. I can't even drive five minutes to my kids practices for sports without paying a toll. That's like, crazy. You're already taking every dollar. You're basically taking every dollar we have. You know, we're carrying, you know, the, the few are carrying the many mm-hmm. out here. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, when you look at, when you look at what gets taken out of your check week after week, it's, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Just to get an inspection in this building costs money. Everything costs money. You know, these mm-hmm. are entitled to as business owners, and we pay out our out the yin yang just to get them to come in, with the hopes that we get approved, and that's before you get like you know four or five fines that you have to pay and fight before you know oh we're in compliance now. You made a few thousand off us just before we even opened the doors. Mm-hmm. Basically criminal. Oh, it is criminal. It is absolutely criminal. And uh, the fact that people can clear consciously uh, put these things in effect is, is just. It's just not human. It's not right. Mm-hmm. It's really. It's uh, we put ourselves in a situation where we're um, we're being a, we're being our own worst enemy. Like mm-hmm. sit back and take a look at what you're really doing. You're taxing people into non-existence. It's hard to live here financially. Live here. I have two businesses and a full-time salary, and it's hard to live here. It, and you know? it can and you and even people from like you know from my perspective in the rural areas get taxed all the same just differently you know what's popular in rural areas is stuff like septic tanks propane tanks stuff like that yeah. things that because we don't have access to all of the government infrastructure that has been built and whatnot all the time but in order to, to do anything for like septic tanks and stuff unless you do it technically like illegally in yourself mm-hmm. if you want a contractor to come out and replace or put in a septic tank for you yeah. or you call a contractor they're going to say mm, you got to call the county 
and they're going to send out an inspector before we can do anything. And then the inspector would be like, all right, it'll be $500 for me to come look at your yard. And then it's just, it's just tax, 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 tax. It's lots of fees. I had to, uh, I just had a fight with uh, New Jersey Easy Pass. Mm-hmm. So I saw, um, they were charging me for a plate that wasn't mine, but it looked close enough. So I was getting like the full Monty fee. So like instead of a $3 toll, mm-hmm. they would just charge me for the entire turnpike, which was like $55. Oh, so I up and I, in my head, I'm going, oh my God, I can't believe I had to pay this. And after like two hours on the phone of going through line by line, eventually it got wiped. But I'm like, what a waste of resources. You had to pay that guy to fight with me. Mm-hmm. Holding system in place that's clearly faulty. Mm-hmm. And you're taking up my time and nobody's compensated for that. Mm-hmm. What, a, what a waste. What a, really what a waste. It's um, There's way too much control and way too much oversight when it comes to living in some of these bigger areas. Mm-hmm. Much. Just the fact that I have to pay to get off the island that I live on. I have one free bridge. Not one of them is free. There's four bridges out here. I pay for all of them to get off and come back on. And some of them are expensive. If you're a non-resident, I think the Verrazano to go to Brooklyn to that connects you to the rest of New York City, I feel like it's something like, I don't even, I want to say it's like up, up or it's close to 20 bucks just to go to work. That's insane. Yeah, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. If you want to take the Brooklyn Bridge, which is free to get into Manhattan, you got to wait in hours of traffic. If you want to go through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, Takes you into below Manhattan real quick. You got to pay like twelve dollars. Like what a what a scam! Really, what a scam! Staten Island's funny because you're gonna hear this in the next couple of weeks. There's a um, I believe it's Nicole Maliotaka. She's one of our uh, local politicians. She grew up grew up born in Asia. She's presenting potentially annexing from the rest of New York City, and the rest of New York City would really suffer if we did because. We get so much in interstate commerce. We make so much money in interstate commerce because of all the, the trucking lanes and all that other stuff that come from Port of New York, Port of New Jersey, mm-hmm. that burst through New York City. We, we have our own ports here. So we would lose if we took, if we went self-sustaining, our bridges alone could make us a beautiful place to live. We would have roads because we wouldn't be sharing with, with the other five boroughs. Yeah. So this keeps coming up. It comes up like every like 10 years. You'll hear somebody push for it. It never happens because the city would lose way too much money. The state would lose too much money if we were on our own. Yeah. But to the politician who does get that done, oof, God bless. <laughs> I'll be the I'll be the police chief of the Richmond County Sheriff's Department if they ever make one. <laughs> so I don't like. It's crazy. It's crazy what goes on up here. This place is a, a a very interesting dynamic when it comes to being cop being in for a first responder, like you deal with a lot of weird stuff. And even as a, just a, an everyday citizen, you deal with really, really weird stuff here and stuff that happens very, very quickly. It's amazing how fast the riots can just materialize the way they were. Mm-hmm. Like roving bands of protesters. Like it's just crazy how fast it kind of comes and goes and how fast the resources have to come to kind of, you know, put things in control. So, it's uh it's definitely a crazy place to work. Don't don't live in the city, kids. Live yeah. in the woods. Buy chickens. <laughs> yeah. Kidding. You ain't kidding. It's funny, like we um I like Staten Island. I, mm. I always I'm born and raised here, so I'm I'm super partial to it. Mm. It's a great place to work. As a kid, you know, I it, it was nothing for me to put on a uh, jump on my bike, 
ride into town, go to a baseball card store, pick up some baseball cards, come back. And nobody knew where the hell I was. Mm-hmm. I successfully do that as a 10, 11, 12-year-old. I couldn't fathom that for my kids now. Yeah, couldn't. No. I don't even want them going outside the door without me. I don't know. And I just we, don't. Uh, we, we, it's the place that it used to be. Yeah. You know? I, I've had that conversation with friends who have kids now or, or my parents talking about it, like the the way the world is now and like what they used to do is just the world is different now. The world is entirely different and it's never coming back. The old world's never coming back. No, no, it's definitely, I don't even know if the world's like that that much. I just don't think it's like that. Mm. You know, I think that the cities are definitely far, they're far removed and I don't just, I just don't even, even where I am, I'm I'm out in PA. I'm in, I'm in the sticks Mm. and even out there, I've still, maybe it's just because I'm, I'm pegging Reddit all the time. But I just don't feel comfortable with certain things for the kids out there, even out there. So, yeah. you know, so be it. The whole goal of like, I was talking about this with a bunch of my, my guys I served in the Marine Corps with. We were saying the other day, like, it was really easy to go to war post 9-11 because you felt like you could, you had to, right? Mm-hmm. I would be very hesitant to, to ever be put in a situation like that again with the current state of affairs because it's like, what am I really doing? Huh? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I feel like that anymore. You know, no. love, I love what I love, but I, I went to war with the hopes that my kids would never have to. Mm-hmm. And here we are in the middle of another large scale terror attack. I, that was supposed to be gone. We were yeah. one of why we went overseas, right. To, to remove that type of stuff from, from humanity. Right. Clearly we didn't because yeah. really there's more, it's just as many now as there was then, if not more. So, what really did we do? I think I think one thing to say to that too is you know, technology and access to the internet has kind of shown us the reality of the world, yep. and uh, there's a lot of uh, money exchange and backdoor handshakes going on between people who are supposed to be enemies to mm-hmm. embrace. It sounds weird, but to embrace your patriotism. Yeah. You know, how, how many people are really going to line up to go die on an island in the Philippines fighting the Chinese when? Right. Everybody's buddy buddy behind closed doors. Right, right. Share sharing bank accounts. <laughs> yeah, it's it's And none of those bank accounts are ours, which that's the shitty thing of it. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not like any of it's benefiting us. It's um you're responsible now as a forty two year old now, my perspective on my next five to ten years is different than it was five to ten years ago. Yeah. Oh for sure. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Seen things, done things, been a part of things that I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. You know, whereas a younger person, the younger version of me would have naively just, went, you know, wouldn't wouldn't ever go against the grain. Now, I'm like, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. So, and that kind of leads me to the, the last kind of area of discussion I wanted to hit on for this is, you know, what do your, what is your expectations for 2024? How... What kind of events do you foresee playing out that people should probably keep on the forefront of their mind? I think you'd be crazy not to consider preparedness. Mm-hmm. And this is not like, I'm not talking like doomsday prepper type level shit. Yeah. If you're not strongly considering a plan to get, get away and get away quickly and safely, I think you're wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that there's been enough things shown the 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 veil's the veil is gone 
the veil of secrecy is gone. Sure. Right? Agendas are agendas. Pandemics are pandemics. They're going to come and go. And we already know, like, when these things hit, things get restricted. Where do you want to be for the next one is the question. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be stuck up in, you know, suburbia? Do you want to be stuck up in an urban area? Or maybe do you want to preemptively say, hey, I have another option? Mm-hmm. Me, COVID was another uh, – it, it sealed the deal for me. I needed another option mm-hmm. for mental health and for uh, egress, right? Yeah. Health was I just wanted to get you know unwind and detach from all the things I do here. The second piece of the puzzle is I wanted to, I wanted land to be able to go and do what I wanted to. Do. So that kind of you know served a twofold purpose. Um, people should be considering that. However, right now it seems like the buyer's market is terrible. So yeah. you need to be financially cognizant of things that are going on, paying attention to the rates, paying attention to what the banks are saying because they're pretty good predictors of problems, right? Mm-hmm. Even the car stuff right now, the cars are still not, that situation still hasn't been rectified from years ago. So you talk about it never will. It may never, right? I'm in the cusp of going to buy a new car. I can't even wait to walk into a dealership and hear the kind of bullshit they're going to try to sell me. (laughs) For this, you know, for a mere nine ninety nine a month, you could lease this. Mm -hmm. Go. That car is not worth it. (laughs) Like you know, like you know. So be be put your eggs in a basket that's conducive to. If I had to go alone for a bit with just the people I love, could I do that? That's where my money's going to right now. I'm solidifying their future. If in a, if in the event we need to step away, that's, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm not saying it's forever. I'm just mm-hmm. saying right now there has been enough events, whether that be from a a, a biological large scale mass pandemic type scenario, which we clearly lived through, mm-hmm. uh, right through civil unrest, right through God only knows what else come our way mm-hmm. there's enough stuff going on consistently where it's like yeah have, have a plan yeah. and be and, and and execute it properly and if you can't execute it properly you seek out people who will allow you to streamline that this is a lot of people and you know this from the training industry like mm-hmm. a lot of bullshit out there. Yeah. a lot of we talked about it and we won't mention names but the people that are you know Lapping their gums the middle the minute something happens nobody has a true understanding of what's going on on the ground unless they physically are there at the moment upon which none of those people can speak about that anyway because they're in the middle of an investigation yeah to jump on social media and scream from the rafters all sorts of stuff like that to me it's just straight up um you know you just you're you're gaslighting yourself you know what i mean You're, you're looking for the attention I just don't think that um, there's some great resources. We talked about them. I, I told you I, I'm a huge fan of um, Mike Shelby. I think that his uh, information that he's putting out is pre- pretty good. There's a foundation, a good context for uh, how to broaden your horizons for understanding intelligence cycle within the context of where you live. Mm-hmm. I just got linked up with my boy from Rickonomics. Huge fan of him. Uh, he's local here too. When he's not bouncing around the rest of the world, uh, so we, him and I have some stuff that we're collaborating on. Point twenty four. Look forward to um, Heather, who's on, who's been with me for years. I don't know if you ever met her, but she owns uh, Digital Defense. She is literally taking technology and open source information to another level. Mm-hmm. It can give you the skills to do that yourself. 
And if you put if you can put yourself in a position where you're able to collect and really truly understand what's a problem for you in your area, not just on general USA whole, mm-hmm. but specifically your area, I think your probability of being able to navigate uncertain times goes up you know, exponentially. Do you, uh, whether it be left, right, middle, random party, do you foresee the political violence of 2024 being the same or worse than 2020? General thoughts. I think it's going to get worse. I, I agree. Doom and gloom, but I and I just having lived through it and having seen how quickly it was so ad- it was so like accepting people were so accepting of violence uh, a few summers ago, mm-hmm. and, and I think they're even worse now. I think that COVID had a lot to do with that people were just mm-hmm. looking for something to, to 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 get behind, sure, to a degree. But I think that right now there's such a huge divide, like. They're just waiting for like that incessant, you know, uh, uh, trigger to just kind of take it to another level. Mm-hmm. I think we're, I think we're going to see something stupid. Something. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does not seem like it would take much to turn a, a lit match into a you know gas can on fire. Complete, pa- complete powder keg. U.S. is a complete powder keg right now. Mm-hmm. Which and- is which is most people don't realize it, but I think we're in a worse position because we're not used to it. People who live in like Eastern Bloc countries who are used to like famine and regional conflict or the Middle East and Africa and all that, like they're used to it. Life goes on. Like here, when we're faced with just dramatic change, people act, react very dramatically. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We are, um, we are less accepting of violence now than we've ever been. Like people are like two extremes. There's people who are shying away from it and completely it doesn't exist. It's not part of their life. Mm-hmm. And there are people who have a propensity for violence who are like all about getting involved in this crazy shit. I had the last not to to, to, to drag this on, but okay. the last couple of days I've been um, unpacking boxes, right? Mm-hmm. Like old manuals and and you know courses I took and stuff like that. And I've been slowly bringing it to, to the shop to put in our, we were building out a library. Mm. And the stuff that we said in 04, 05, 03, post 9-11 was like, there was no hiding it. Like, it was like, this is what the enemy is capable of. Bam, right? Yeah. Or in your face, super violent because America had the stomach for it then because we were still angry, right? Yeah. Post 9-11, like. You can show me a beheading video, and I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, let's go get these assholes. Mm. But whereas now, you show that to anybody, they're like, oh my god, this is horrible. No, that's reality. That's what's potentially out there. Mm-hmm. You don't have the stomach for it. How are you ever going to survive it? You know, if if what happened in in, in Israel doesn't open up your mind to the fact that that could potentially bleed its way over here if that doesn't open your eyes to it to make you start thinking about how you would react or how you're going to survive or 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 navigate something like that you're wrong you're sadly you're sadly mistaken and behind the curve Mm -hmm. so crazy stuff crazy times man crazy stuff well joey i appreciate you coming on brother uh taking the time out of your day yeah man we, we we chatted quite a bit i appreciate you um I, I, besides Instagram, is there any other big ways people can find uh, Trinity or 
uh yeah man um, or anything like that where, where can guys find you I'll, I'll link everything below but where can guys yeah, find you absolutely absolutely so for trinity for the training complex it's um uh instagram and obviously is our big our big conduit but uh our website's pretty robust it's always being updated it's uh www.trinitytrainingcomplex.com mm-hmm. and for gray fighter gear for all our gear and some of the, the left of boom classes that we do that would be uh www.grayfightergear.com and we're in the middle of a, a pretty robust um website overhaul so i'm looking forward to launching that for 2024 mm-hmm. and for this year i will be back on the road so you will see me out i'm going to be heading out to ben franklin range in february we're going to be doing a really awesome cold weather course by yeah. on purpose <laughs> i heard you talk to the boys there we, we do want to do something in february just to kind of get us out there and um i'm going to continue to do some of the left of boom stuff here in new york city and uh, throughout the, the tri-state area mm-hmm. that, that eventually will take on the road retire so the goal is to retire that's 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 kind of where i'm headed to for um the law enforcement side i, I finally hit a point where i'm ready and i think the company's ready for that next level of responsibility on my end. So I think we're, we're in a good spot. Awesome. Yeah, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Um, guys go find Joey, show them some love, show them support. If you're in New York, get training. All this stuff is new to you guys. You guys got lots of new toys. Definitely, definitely get the training. Without a doubt. All right, guys, that's all I've got for episode 30 intelligence and two way evolution. As always train hard, train often. Tell me turn it down and I'ma only turn up louder. Call me what you wanna, but you can't call me no coward. Shrink the numbers, we the people, still the ones with power. Fighting fire with fire, time to take back what is ours. Tell me turn it down and I'ma